Welcome to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Emilio Ferrara. He is a researcher into botnets. This is Technotopia. Technotopia is brought to you by Happy Fun Corp. Happy Fun Corp is a design-driven technology company in Brooklyn, New York, that specializes in building mobile and web applications for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Whether it's a new mobile or web application that will help people experience the internet in a fun new way, or software that will interface with a new piece of top secret hardware, Happy Fun Corp is always up to the challenge. Big or small, Happy Fun Corp loves building software and loves working with great people. Come build with them. HappyFunCorp.com. Welcome back to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Emilio Ferrara. He's a research assistant professor at the computer science department at USC and the research leader at the USC Information Science Institute. That was a mouthful. Welcome, Emilio. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Yeah. So I got really excited today for the first time in a long time because you posted that you've created some Twitter bots that are going to make uh, things okay for us. You know, uh, for almost 10 years now, I've been studying how um, social media have been manipulated for all sorts of uh, uh, nefarious, negative purposes. Uh, and a couple of years ago, uh, you know, as I was getting more and more into understanding how bots work, I became fascinated with this idea that bots could be maybe used for social good, for good things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how this project started. Okay. So, I mean, so you've been studying this for 10 years. What kind of bots were you dealing with 10 years ago? All sorts of things. Um, We have seen an increase in the use of uh, bots for manipulation of conversation online. Uh, You know, it started with platforms like uh, Twitter and Facebook when they were still much younger than and smaller than now. Um, And obviously, uh, Given that these platforms today have hundreds of millions or even billions of people, the dangers uh, become more and more uh, tangible, and the effects of the presence of these of the presence of these uh, bots become uh, incredibly incredibly dangerous. Uh, we've seen bots uh, operating in the uh, spectrum of uh, political conversation, trying to manipulate. Political discussion. We have been, you know, studying how bots uh, have affected uh, a variety of uh, conversations in the context of elections in the United States as well as all over the world. Only during, you know, the last year, year and a half, we looked at uh, the U.S. Of course, but uh, we looked at the U.K. Uh, we looked at Italy, and this year we looked at French, and we are currently studying uh, the German election that. Uh, happened yesterday, actually. Um, this is only one of the scenarios where uh, social bots have been used for uh, malicious purposes. Uh, we looked at the spreading of, spreading of conspiracy theories, uh, anti-science campaigns, uh, for example, uh, climate change mm-hmm. uh, denials or anti-vaccination campaigns. We have looked at how social bots have been used to manipulate the stock market. Um, and we have, you know, we have been looking also at uh, how bots have been used to kind of create mass hysteria uh, during uh, disasters, emergencies. Mm-hmm. So, is this is this computer programming's computer programs 
uh, scaring human beings? Is that what's going on here? Is this basically just like a, or is there is there a there's always a human being behind these operations, but once you get these things started, are they automatic that you've seen? That is a really good point. We have seen all sorts of things. We have seen bots that are completely automated. Um, their behavior is very, sometimes even very simple and predictable. Uh, and we have seen bots that are much more complex, bots that carry out a sort of an agenda. Uh, and you can see how they develop some narratives that are uh, most likely fed by humans and everything, you know, between these two extremes. So um, to answer your specific question regarding, you know, fear mongering, it is the case that in some particular conversations, especially those that are related to uh, disasters, emergencies, um, crisis and so on, some bots have triggered this sort of mass hysteria in the, in the public uh, or in the public domain. So we have seen that, for example, clearly when uh, Ebola, when the Ebola pandemic happened uh, two years ago, we have seen how bots have been, you know, rebroadcasting, sharing large number of articles which were actually incorrect uh, as they were, you know, propagating rumors about the spreading of the disease uh, in the United States or rumors about specific events. And uh, we saw how people reacted essentially in real time. And this was real, you know, fear mongering and uh, spreading of hysteria, uh, so, in the, especially in the U.S. population. I mean, this sounds like a James Bond thing. So is this literally, there's somebody sitting in a room somewhere that says, hey, I want to scare everybody about Ebola? It's really hard to answer this question uh, <laughs> for, a number, for a number of reasons. It's actually... Uh, it's actually very complex because uh, we have been uh, revealing and unveiling a lot of these uh, anomalies as they occur, oftentimes in a very timely way, you know, after a couple of weeks. Uh, in the case of the, uh, the US, ele US election, actually, we published the only peer review paper to, to appear uh, on November 7th, so the day before the election in which we revealed uh, a lot of anomalies regarding uh, how bots were pushing um, uh, political uh, discussions in certain mm -hmm. divisions. So we have been trying to be timely. Um, uh, it's really hard because we have, you know, a small research team. But on the other hand, on the other side, as you suggested, uh, possibly there are many organizations, possibly there are many entities, you know, some suggest there are state actors, uh, maybe Russia or others that have been carrying out uh, some operations at scale. So it's really hard and really challenging to somewhat, you know, keep up with them. Yeah, it's so strange. It's like, uh, it's almost a, it's almost like a, a mental virus that they've been, that they've figured out how to implant really. It is. Unfortunately, it is working out well in, uh, at least from that perspective in, in uh, a number of scenarios. Uh, we have seen how, you know, uh, these discussions online, for example, uh, in the context of anti-vaccination uh, uh, campaigns have produced, uh, uh, you know, the comeback of measles in, for example, in California last year mm -hmm. uh, with an increasing rate of uh, families uh, who decide not to vaccinate their children. Uh, and we have seen that, uh, you know, the stock market crashed in some occasions uh, and that uh, there are, you know, allegations that uh, operations using social bots might be behind these 
uh, events and we have seen all sorts of uh, effects of social bots on political discussion in many, many countries. It's a fascinating tool, and it's it's. But you're saying it's been around for a good ten years that they people have started using these. But why did they only come to light recently? Why are, why do why do we suddenly notice them? Well, unfortunately, even though, uh, as you suggested, the phenomenon is not entirely new. What is new is the, you know, exponential uh, improvement that the technologies behind these bots have uh, exhibited in the last couple of years with you know the advancements of artificial intelligence we see more and more sophisticated bots that look more and more like humans on these platforms and it's also obviously harder and harder to detect them for us uh, because uh, you know as time goes by the the, the bots become more and more human-like uh, and uh, if you uh, add to that the fact that you can have you know people real people instructed them instructing them and creating these agenda or narratives that the bots push then it becomes really a very hard challenge to identify them and uh, it's really impossible to do it at scale you need mm -hmm. to you need to look at specific uh, conversations specific events uh, to narrow down your attention on you know subset of users that you can handle to to manage with even with our mostly advanced uh, you know algorithms for okay. detection wow so i i want to i want one more a couple more questions about the dystopian aspect of this but then <laughs> i want you to get into what you guys were working on so the yeah. so these these bots that you've seen they're all they're all made by a person somebody's made these things have you figured out who's making these things very hard question to answer. Uh, for technical limitations, uh, we are not actually uh, provided uh, with the data, with the digital footprints that we would need to make this type of inference. Twitter doesn't tell you, for example, uh, which IP address has been used by the device uh, which posted some you know, particular tweet. We don't have, um, oftentimes, in the vast majority of the cases, their geographic location. We don't have all this information that is required to make this inference. So for us, it's really, really challenging to go back to who is behind the bots. We can make some hypotheses in certain particular scenarios. We have been, for example, uh, we have been becoming increasingly more convinced that, for example, some communities uh, organize and come together to deploy and deliver social bots, for example, mm -hmm. to push, to push alt-right narratives. We have seen that we have evidence from other channels like 4chan or Reddit, uh, and we have a source code in some cases of these bots that are uh, uh, delivered online. So there's so, a so there's a situation where where people are saying, "Hey, everybody, let's get together. You guys, everybody, create ten accounts." Yeah, and run this program based on those ten accounts. Oh, we have seen that. We have seen even tools that allow you to automatically uh, put your computer to their disposal so that they can operate. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, hold on a second. Let's go. Let's go to what you guys did. You guys did something very, very interesting. You guys, uh, you guys use these bots for good, right? We tried to do so. This was a challenge because, honestly, when we started thinking about this problem, it was around 2013 or 14. There were absolutely no examples of bots used for something good. <laughs> so, as of today, you know, 
fast forward three or four years, there are only three papers, which is funny because you can still count them on your hands. Sure. There are only three papers that use bots for social good. Our own work and two other papers that use bots for to fight racism online mm -hmm. uh, or to fight um, to identify people who have suicide, suicidal thoughts and uh, kind of put them in contact with, uh, um, you know, uh, suicide prevention support groups, these kind mm -hmm. of applications. So when we started thinking about these, um, again, back in 2013 or so, there, were there was not absolutely no evidence that bots could be used for something good. So this was a very challenging thought. And some people, you know, took the, thought that that was crazy because, uh, you know, uh, it's hard to determine whether people would be, uh, would receive um, uh, this idea in a positive way. Sure, sure. Uh, so that's what we tried to do. Come okay. up with first, you know, bots for social good. Uh, project at that time. So why don't you describe the the project? I guess it was it was thirty nine different bots that were that were yeah. tweeting out like happy things. Yeah. So what we did was in collaboration with my uh, colleagues and friends from the Technical uh, University of Denmark, uh, they actually came out came up with this very clever idea to have a a, a project, a research project carried out by uh, graduate students of a um, of a social bot. Uh, uh, engineering class to come up with these bots that uh, would um, be injected into Twitter according to some of the uh, rules that we had to follow from the uh, uh, review board that uh, sort of regulated the ethics of this study. Sure. So we came up with the, uh, we came up with this idea of uh, creating these positive interventions. Some of them were somewhat for fun stuff like you know high five a stranger just to bring you know some happiness or some positive messaging on the platform. And some were actually aimed to be useful, like uh, interventions aimed at uh, fostering you know flu shots. This kind of a, this kind of a, this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what kind of messages? What kind of messages do these people get? Was it was it? Did these bots send it out to the general internet, or did they or did they resend? The yeah, the bots were designed to target specifically the community of users who live in San Francisco, and that was a sort of a uh, by design sort of an engineering solution to narrow down the population of okay. that would be exposed to this, so that you know to avoid that this message basically gets lost in the entire internet, in the entire platform. So very focused to a specific population. And of course, that's a large city, so there are you know thousands and thousands of users. So there was a sort of run-up period before the start of the intervention that lasted a couple of months in which we deployed these bots. Um, and this was actually a really great work that my colleagues from Denmark did, deploying these bots into these uh, communities and start basically so that the bots would start accruing followership and this was already surprisingly successful because <laughs> you know we thought that the bots would basically go unnoticed and then we figure out instead that some of these bots got thousands of followers which is incredible if you think about it this was <laughs> i think how are these bots getting followers i can barely get followers yeah, so it was really interesting. What we did was each uh, it was it was just a very simple set of rules. These bots would um, uh, their accounts would be populated manually by 
the student will design the bot sure. uh, so that the bot will look sort of credible. It wouldn't have, you know, a default account with egg mm-hmm. uh, and no messages and stuff like that. So they would create sort of a realistic profile. And then uh, they would define some of the topics of interest for the bot. Well, in that case, obviously, the oh. people who interacted with these users didn't know that they were bot at that time. So uh, <laughs> that, that was a part of the ingredient for the success of some of these bots. And then, obviously, another ingredient was their activity. Since these are bots, um, they operate mostly in a completely automatic way. Mm-hmm. So many of them started, you know, publishing hundreds of tweets uh, over the course of a, a few weeks. So, and, uh, so if I said, like, I like Apple, mm-hmm. and you you checked everything out, and you said, uh, you, you I was I was getting the message, and I said, oh, this this person likes Apple, I will follow them, right? And yeah, because the bot would reply like, hey, Apple's great. Precisely, and this was a uh, this was one ingredient. It was a little bit more sophisticated than that as well, because these people, these well. <laughs> These bots, which look like people uh, to the eyes of you know the other the other uh, users, uh, could also mention users uh, who exhibited some particular interest in, say, the hashtag you know Apple. Uh, mm-hmm. Just to follow your example, right? Could kind of get in touch with them, try to foster some of these interactions, uh, and of course that increased the success. Of being followed by by the users. So long story short, after a couple of months, some of these accounts became really, really very successful with five, six, seven thousand followers each. Some of the bots that were quote unquote less successful still had a few hundred followers, which is very satisfactory. Uh, so uh, we get into October 2014. And at that time, what we did was basically starting these interventions with mm-hmm. these campaigns. So we have a dozen of these uh, campaigns for social good that span from things for fun like I Five a Stranger, or, you know, Photoshop uh, celebrity phase on a turkey for uh, you know Thanksgiving. So all these uh, all these were context- contextualized. Um, with uh, events in the offline world, right? Okay. Uh, there were some things related to, you know, Black Friday, and of course there were some things related to the flu season, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so we implemented all these uh, campaigns for social good, uh, uh, again, in a sort of orchestrated, synchronized, automatic way. So the bots at certain you know point in time would start tweeting about this um, specific campaign, and then we observe uh, you know, how many times each bot becomes retweeted, which tweets become retweeted more, which user retweet bots more, and so on. So this was a... Uh, the study had basically a twofold goal. The first was the proof of concept, right? Mm-hmm. We want to understand whether you can use bots for this positive uh, type of operations rather than for all the nefarious purposes that we know. How, how do you measure... How did you measure that these people are actually listening? Well, what we did was sort of a proxy to that. What we try to understand is whether the people became engaged with the bots and tried to sort of adopt those okay. those uh, particular hashtags. So right? retweet, retweets, hashtags, all that other good stuff. Interesting. Precisely, precisely. And the second thing is that, uh, you know, once we collected all these uh, data from uh, all the users who interacted with the bots, we were capable of understanding uh, uh, how information spreads 
on these platforms. Mm -hmm. We have some you know, mathematical models um, that we developed uh, that try to um, represent and capture how uh, information passes from one person to another on a statistical basis. And uh, we tested some of these models, and eventually we figured out that, <coughs> excuse me, there is a, a specific model that is called uh, complex contagion mm -hmm. that explains information diffusion very well. Okay, so and that's the idea that if you see things multiple times, uh, you're more likely to spread them. That's absolutely correct. So there are two, there were two different <clears throat> sort of um, ideas or competing hypotheses in the literature. The first one is that information somewhat, somehow spreads like uh, epidemics. Every time someone who has uh, you know, the flu, for example, sneezes in your face, mm -hmm. you have some probability of becoming you know, infected. And mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if uh, you know, who is sneezing in your face, uh, if it's you know, different friends or the same person multiple times and so on. Uh, so people thought that information spreading online works kind of like epidemics. Uh, this was uh, the first attempt to model information diffusion, but throughout the course of uh, uh, the last couple of years, people have been starting doubting that that's the case. Maybe there is a more complex uh, dynamic behind information diffusion, and that's why um, this idea of the complex contagion came about. Uh, and this idea, again, as you said, uh, sort of suggests that it is important not only how many times you are exposed to a piece of information, but also how many sources you uh, see it from. Um, so somehow seeing something from multiple friends increases your uh, likelihood to uh, adopt yourself that piece of information, that hashtag retweeting that specific tweet. Um, so should, okay, so this is an interesting question. Should somebody who has a technically well, positive message, I mean, it's all relative, right? So may, maybe my message of, of getting Nazis into the White House is, uh, is positive for me. But <laughs> should positive messages use the same tools and bot systems that negative ones do now? Should we fight back with fire? That is an excellent question. So I've been talking about this issue for several years now with a lot of colleagues in my uh, research community. And it turns out that the answer to your question is really, really hard to provide. And the reason is the following. You want to understand first whether answering with fire, quote unquote, as you suggested, mm -hmm. is a good idea or not. And it turns out that probably it's not a good idea and the reason is the is the following. There are some studies that have been carried out by uh, cognitive scientists or social psychologists. One of these studies recently published by Stanford University, uh, somewhat uh, run, you know, they run a real experiment asking, you know, bringing students to a lab. So these are, you know, Stanford graduate students may be, you know, arguably some of the most intelligent people on the planet, right? Mm -hmm. uh, these people were, these students were tasked with, uh, with the goal of uh, uh, determining whether some news were true or not, so factor fiction, right? So fake news versus not. And it turns out that even though you know these people are super smart, it turns out they do slightly better than random. So the first issue here, it's really, really hard. 
even for humans, even for smart, educated, knowledgeable people to tell apart oftentimes true from false, you know, fact from fiction. This was a very disconcerting um, uh, result that came about, you know, a couple of months ago. And the follow-up study actually somewhat demonstrated the fact that many people are very reluctant mm -hmm. about changing their mind. Once they see something, they kind of stick to that belief, especially if this reinforces their pre-existing uh, ideas or beliefs. And this is something that in cognitive sciences is called the confirmation bias. If you believe, if you have a, uh, some pre-existing belief and you see a piece of information that reinforces that belief, then you are less likely to change your mind, increasingly less likely to change your mind. So what these people in this other study did was trying to develop, to deploy some interventions in which uh, the, the individuals who were exposed to some piece of fake news were told, look, this is really fake. Uh, you have been tricked. Uh, the reality is the opposite. And then ask to these people a couple of weeks later uh, about their recollection. What was uh, the fact? Was it true or was it false? And actually, and this is very worrisome, the majority of the people who were subject to this correction intervention told the opposite. Mm -hmm. They were more inclined to believe that the fake news was real, <laughs> as opposed to the people who were simply not told the truth. So actually, telling someone to change their mind make them stick even more to the false message. <laughs> so you see how this becomes very, very quickly not only a technical, technical, technological or technical challenge mm -hmm. of you know, how to implement the bots, uh, how many bots we need, how they should work, what communities they should target, all these technical challenges that computer scientists can face very well. This becomes uh, much more of a, of a challenge also for cognitive scientists, for social scientists, for social psychologists, and so forth, to understand how you should do these interventions. How to change people's minds. Yeah, what mm -hmm. you should do to change people's minds, especially to correct wrong beliefs, uh, because it's not clear as of today that you could do that very effectively in a systematic way. So it's not horrible, but it's not good either. It is not, not all is bad. There are strategies that at least do not harm there are strategies okay. that maybe don't work out, but in the worst case, don't cause more harm than uh, the good that they provide. So there are some techniques. There is hope for the future that you know research uh, can have a sort of a uh, concerted uh, um, success in in uh, coming from multiple disciplines, from multiple directions, mm -hmm. bringing together you know the computer science and. Uh, other communities to solve these issues okay all right well here's my hope i hope that someday these bots are just going to talk to each other and it's just gonna it's just, just the the whole internet's going to explode and then we can go back to talking to each other face to face maybe that, that's maybe that's the best future i think that in one uh as a closing sentence of one of my <laughs> more popular papers on this on this topic i said we are probably headed towards this, you know, dystopian future in which uh, we will have platforms uh, where only bots operate <laughs> and they talk to each other without yeah. 
knowing that they are bots and the humans will be somewhere else. All right. Well, you're okay. That sounds a little bit better, I guess. That's sort of like a. <laughs> eventually, they won't even be using language. It'll just be a, It'll just be gibberish. It'll be just zip files. Emilio, thank you very much for joining us. This has been some fascinating stuff. I'm glad we got to cover some breaking news on here too. That's really that's really great. Absolutely. Happy right. to contribute. And where can people some find some of your papers or anything? Do you have a, anything online? Everything is on my webpage. Uh, I am very much for open science. Lots mm -hmm. of data, lots of papers are all in the public domain. People will be able to read all of these things if they start from my website. All right. Emilia Ferrara, Research Assistant Professor at the Computer Science Department at USC. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Take care. This has been Technotopia. I'm John Biggs. We will see you next week. Technotopia is brought to you by Typewriter. Typewriter is your on-demand editor, and their amazing team of writers will make your book chapter, blog post, or email shine. Typewriter editors come from places like TechCrunch, Gizmodo, and the New York Times, and they offer low bulk rates for longer work. Check it out at typewriter.plus. That's typewriter.plus. <laughs>